0: For podcast only, for only the like second time, because uh, my friend Peter Atia, who has his own amazing podcast, which is like top-ranked in the world, not that I'm jealous or anything, even though we were both at Stanford at the same time, and he's crushing it, and I'm being crushed by it. He was on my show recently, and he showed me this setup that Tim Ferriss, uh, who is his homie, taught him to use based on his world-class podcast, which is this little Zoom recorder and these special microphones. And I went immediately to Amazon and purchased these because I was like, I will not be outdid in the audio production department. Also, I'm so jealous of Peter and all his amazing podcast stuff that he does. So I thought, let's try this out. You know, there's like a gardener outside blowing leaves. I'm in Studio Z here at home. And uh, I thought, well, let, let's see if this quality makes it worth doing for future shows. Because since I have two microphones, I can now go around traveling when I do shows and stuff and actually interview people for audio only. Because sometimes I think if you're going to do a one-hour piece uh, with a guest and on video, people get pretty tired. It burns their phone battery. You have to stare at my face. And, you know, recently there was an amazing troll. I did a Facebook watch party, which is this new thing that Facebook's been trying to get me to do forever. And I've been like, this is dumb. Then I started doing it and I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, Where I basically DJ up a bunch of my videos and watch them with fans live. So anyone can tune in and and leave comments and I can pin the comments, I can interact with people. And it's a lot of fun because I get to watch my old videos, which as a narcissist it's just it's a tremendous experience but as a somebody who's always trying to get better it's fun cuz you can watch people interact and go oh this this hits a nerve i should do more along these lines or maybe i could be better at conveying things in this way or you know we never really followed up on this whole sepsis thing we should do that again uh you know cuz you can tee up you know it's beginning to look a lot like sepsis When the BP's low. And realize, boy, I sang that terribly. And the Z-Pups are adorable. Adorable! But what was the point of all this? Oh, yeah. I was doing this uh, Facebook watch party. And by the way, this is my stream of consciousness. You guys know I'm totally ADD. There's that gardener outside blowing leaves again. Uh, This troll came on. This guy Joseph. Not that I'm keeping track. And he said... Z-Dog looks like The Rock if he had AIDS. And I I realized something about that statement is spot on. (laughs) I laughed so hard I pinned the comment. It was amazing. So the point being, not everybody wants to stare at a video for one to three hours. Um, So sometimes maybe the audio is a good idea, especially if the quality is not terrible. So I need your feedback, guys. Like, you can't obviously leave comments on the podcast, but you can private message me on Facebook. You can email me, Zubin, Z-U-B-I-N at turntablehealth.com. You can become a supporter of the show on Facebook, which I prefer to Patreon and all these other things because on Facebook, I can actually interact with supporters daily. And I do, I do live exclusive shows just for supporters. And soon we're gonna offer CME, continuing medical education, and continuing education units for nurses and, and others. All dependent on you know our partner finalizing stuff with us. So starting January, you can I can do a show. You can click through, take some post test questions, and get credit, and all for four ninety nine a month, which is nothing compared to what CME normally costs. So I'm hoping to get that tribe. That tribe's already like twenty five hundred people. I think we get it up to like ten thousand, and then that supports the show. I never have to like shill to Big Glaxo or whoever, which I don't do anyways. Um but the point being if we can do more podcast stuff and you guys can support it by being supporters on Facebook getting CE and CME credit that might be a cool thing and then you don't have to look at the rock and you don't have to look at the end stage rock cuz that's what I am I'm a rock at at the, at the end stage I'm a hospice rock you know rock with full blown aids not just hiv positive you know end stage rock um <laughs> Oh, this is what happens when I do stuff. Anyway, so so today, I thought it might be fun to talk a little bit just about. Um, and by the way, the great thing about podcasts is you can triple X this or two X this, so you can listen to me really fast. And then it says about that's how you that's how you by the way that's how you fuck with people who are podcast only listeners is you start talking really fast and so then they're already listening at two X and then now they're listening at four X and they don't even can can't understand a word that I'm saying and it just, and it just sounds like it, sound, it pretty soon my goal. Is to talk so fast that when people two-exit, it sounds like a fax machine. Like it's just. <laughs> um, speaking of which, I've, I used to tell medical students because they would be really shitty at presenting to me. And presenting is, you know, for the non-medical, for the muggles. Presenting is when you're standing on the wards and you're, you know, uh, you're saying, "Okay, this is your patient that you saw, Mister Medical Student or Ms. Medical Student." Tell me about this patient in a format that is acceptable to the medical profession so that you can learn how to communicate succinctly, quickly, efficiently, accurately, and in a way that conveys your not, not just the data that you got from this patient, but also your thinking, because your thinking is actually the most important thing when you're a medical student. We want to be able to analyze that, and we want to be able to teach you how to think better, because... That's going to be the one thing that's going to separate you. Like anything, anybody can get, you know, the data, but can you show that you're thinking and integrating all this stuff that you've learned? So the presentation, you know, Mr. Pickles, a 43-year-old African-American gentleman who presents with a chief complaint of my dick hurts. So the way that you can often distinguish a really good advanced medical student or attending or resident or intern or nurse when they're, presenting to you on the phone is that they're able to do this quickly and at a good data transmission speed without error so you know i always i often say like most medical students are at this 2200 baud like 1980s modem level whereas attending physicians are at you know t1 line internet speeds you don't even hear it it's just zeros and ones flying by and you just and you can receive at that level when you're well trained so it's constantly a kind of process. So I have no idea why I started talking about that, but I'm going to get back to what I wanted to talk about, which is a new book that I've been reading uh, by Jonathan Haidt, who is one of these intellectual heroes of mine. He wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, proposed this elephant and rider intellectual model for understanding human minds and how they are divided into an unconscious elephant, which we've talked about, which is automatic, instinctual, operates on these pre-existing schemas, some of which are inherited, some of which are conditioned by experience and repetition and education and where you go to church or if you don't go to church and and these kind of things. Politics, those kind of things are all elephant. And then Ryder is the little guy on top who's just recently evolved, and he's our thinker, our speaker, our verbalizer, the one who actually causes the most human suffering because he's the one who regrets and worries about the future and uh, depression and anxiety is, you know, is partially and largely a construction of the writer, although he's often listening to the emotions of the elephant and codifying them and saying, oh, you know, because these emotions are um, so, uh, you know, powerful, they must be real. And therefore, let me spin a story about these emotions, like I'm worthless or whatever. So Jonathan Haidt is, you know, a psychologist, he's kind of talked a lot about this stuff. Now, what's interesting is his recent book he did with this guy, Greg, who's a, a lawyer, um, kind of a, I think a free speech attorney or something like that. Don't ask me guys, I just read the books. I don't understand them. And certainly don't read the front cover for who the author is. But his recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind and the subtitle is something like, you know, how good intentions led to really terrifying things for this next generation, uh, Gen Z, the iGen the people who were born like 1995 and later. And it really gets to the heart of kind of what's been going on on college campuses and what's been happening with speech and what's been going on on the internet and social media and why it desperately matters for making a future that's better than the present. And the punchline of this book is that over the last, you know, couple decades, the way we've changed how we kind of raise our kids. We helicopter parent them, we overprotect them. There's a culture of safety that's now expanded so much that it includes words. So words can injure you, words are violence, and you need to be protected from them. And and starting around 2013, when this new generation, this iGen that was kind of born with an iPhone or some you know smartphone in their pocket, not really born with it, but they came of age with that, unlike any other generation, including millennials. Millenn- millennials may have always had the internet say, but, they did not always have smartphones, and so this new generation, totally plugged in, they're more anxious, they're more depressed, they're more suicidal. They smoke and drink and have sex later in life. They take these risky behaviors less and later because of this culture of safety. But what's happened is they replace that with a constant connectedness and a plugged-inness to um, the uh, to, to, to the system, and they're always kind of having this fear of missing out when their friends are potentially doing stuff, even though they're not really doing stuff because Instagram is a lie and Facebook is a lie. You put on your best images there and in reality it doesn't show what's actually happening, but people get the sense that they're missing out and they're texting each other constantly and they're bullying each other. And so partially as a result of this, this generation turns to authority to keep them safe because they've always been kept safe by the you know, overbearing, overprotecting parents. So now you have what he calls the three great untruths of this uh, coddled uh, American mind. And again, all started with great intentions. Keep our, our children safe, protect people who've been traumatized, who have PTSD, uh, et cetera, who've had adverse childhood experiences. Like, how do we protect them? Well, you shield them from any potential triggers that might get them uncomfortable because words are potentially violence, because intent doesn't matter, it's outcome that matters. You know, you can drop a bomb thinking it's gonna be on enemy, enemy troops, but it ends up accidentally being on civilians, and that makes it morally the equivalent of intending to drop it on civilians. That's the thinking. So the three great untruths in this are, the first is, that which does not kill me makes me weaker. So the opposite of what you've kind of always been told, that that, just, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Well, they're saying no, that which does not kill you makes you weaker. And the idea is that that they're, that you know this sort of line of thinking is proposing is that children are fragile. And yes, we we know this actually that adverse childhood experiences, severe trauma, can cause lasting repercussions into adulthood, chronic disease, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. This we all know. But this takes it uh, to an extreme that even minor traumas um, that that can 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 damage or weaken a child, and so when they come into college, they're demanding safe spaces and trigger warnings and so on and so forth. Whereas the kind of evidence really kind of argues that actually children are anti-fragile; that some degree of adversity and challenge, especially in college. And in school, when you're supposed to be learning how to think critically, like when I will criticize a medical student for not having a, a proper transmission speed of their presentation, you're trying to challenge them. You're trying to to, or you're, or you're, you know, opposing things they say. You're saying, "Well, why do you think that? Tell me why you think that." Because I actually think this. Let's have an argument. Let's let, for the sake of learning. And now that's a, an attack on the student instead of what it's intended to do, which is actually provoke them to grow, to consider opposing viewpoints, to be able to pose a cogent argument. Now, when you protect people from this kind of challenge, and, and that includes like you know stuff that may be uncomfortable. So like as a comedian slash doctor, I make a lot of jokes that will always, you will always trigger somebody. And I want that to happen. Like to me, that's great. My, you know, my motto used to be bringing butt hurt back. Even the word butt hurt, you know, it comes from TV and these things. People say, oh, you're totally butt hurt. The idea is that it's like you've been spanked and your butt hurts, right? But, but, but even that word triggers some people. Oh, you're, you, it's homophobic. No, it's not. You're homophobic for just even saying that. Like that never even occurred. And now I have to think about that. So, so the idea that we're bringing butt hurt back, meaning you do wanna trigger people a little, you do wanna challenge them. And this is true. It doesn't matter what your political viewpoints are. You, you wanna have these educated arguments. And so we try to do that on the show all the time. We do it in the comment section. I think that's, you know, I think it's what separates our Facebook sort of presence from a lot of, you know, we don't just blindly put out political garbage. It's like, let's have a talk about the nuance around this. You know, I tend to sit firmly in the center. If you sit on the very left or the very right, let's come and have a, a conversation instead of yelling and screaming. But more importantly, I think what Jonathan Haidt in his book points out is that you demonize the other side. So the second great untruth is there are only good and bad people in the world in eternal struggle. And we all know that's not true. But if you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook, you will feel like it is true. And part of the way humans evolved is there's a group dynamic to what humans do. So my group versus your group, in-group versus out-group, us versus other. And social media has amplified this to the extent that, and, and, and we've seen society get more polarized since the end of the Cold War when we had a common enemy. Now it's like, well, we need someone to fight, so we fight each other. So there are good people and bad people. If you're a liberal, then all the Republicans are evil. You can't understand how they could have these views because it sounds crazy. And in your own moral matrix, which is another um, Jonathan Haidt uh, construction, which I think is amazing, these moral taste buds that people have, in your moral matrix, they are just pure evil. You can't understand them. And in their moral matrix, you are off, off the deep end. And so this lack of understanding means people are all good or all bad, which means it is totally okay to go on Twitter in a call out culture where you're at, you actually gain social status in your own tribe by calling out others for their evil. So, you know, MD is a butthole because he uses the word butthurt and he therefore hates, you know, gay people. It's like, what? Um, but you get social status, you get retweets, you get likes. There's this guy Eugene Goo. Gu. I don't know if you guys know about this guy. I'm sure somebody does, because he has 224 or some odd. Not that I'm keeping track, but I just Googled it. 224k thousand subscri- uh, followers on Twitter, and he got famous by taking a knee. He's a he was a surgical resident, Asian American guy, um, in at Vanderbilt. Took a knee in the OR to protest, you know, Vanderbilt's racism. Uh, that he was saying was you know institutional against him. Now that's fine, uh, you making a free speech thing, why you would do it in or outside of the OR is a little strange, but hey, it's your thing, man. And I remember when I heard about it at the time, I was like, whatever, that's cool. You know, Maybe he's suffering a lot of um, uh, subtle discrimination or not so subtle discrimination, we know this happens, whatever. That was my take back then, but, I, I, but my spider sense was tinkling about the dude because I was like, what the hell, man? It's a strange thing for a resident to do. And then Vanderbilt, de-residented him after that. Now, he said it was because of that. I don't know, because people from Vandy, you know, message me. Doesn't sound like that was it. Sounds like he was that resident that, you know, we all knew who nobody wanted to work with. So maybe that was it. Who knows? I'm not saying. Again, it's just speculation. It's not libel or slander, Um, but maybe it was that. But the point is, he's made a whole career now going on Twitter and just, um, you know, kind of inflaming political uh, sentiment. Now, whether you agree with him or not is irrelevant. He's made this sort of following doing this because he knows it's a successful way to get a lot of followers. Now, it all came to a head of last year when it was revealed that he had had created these fake Twitter accounts, these sock puppet accounts, and he was using them to harass uh, an ex-girlfriend of his uh, in a really creepy way. And we did a video about this, a live video where I was back home with my parents and I was walking outside and I streamed this thing live. Again, you had to look at, you know, end stage rock (laughs) to watch this video. Probably would have been better as a podcast because I could have sat here and just pontificated without worrying about what my facial expressions were. How terrible I look! Uh, and so, you know that <laughs> that kind of uh, uh, you would have think you would have thought would have sunk him. He took a couple weeks off, never apologized, came back, started right back up. No, didn't none of his followers batted an eyelash at it. So he's forgiven for actually. In- engaging in the same thing he was criticizing, he blocks everyone who disagrees with him. So that's, I was blocked, Doc Vader was blocked. (laughs) Pretty much everybody was blocked by Eugene Gu who disagreed with him. And remember now this is a guy who sued Donald Trump for blocking him, (laughs) said the president shouldn't be able to block you. And I think he might've won, I don't remember. But the point is, this idea that people are all good or all bad is a trope that seems to work online. When you have in-group, out-group group competition, and humans are wired to partially to be tribal and partially to be individual, and when you and what Jonathan Haidt says is when you kick in that tribal switch that's when shit gets real, you know? Like that's when things can get really ugly and you end up with these literal witch hunts. And he has a whole chapter in the book about witch hunts and how these things have been happening on college campuses where good college administrators are being kicked out based on witch hunts because they say something that's perceived the wrong way. The students end up rising up in this big witch hunt in the call out culture. They shout these guys down, accuse them of racism or homophobia or whatever it is. And you know, whatever the complaint of the day is, and they get, you know, ultimately have to resign. And these are good people with good intent. So this is the other thing. People are all good or all bad. First universal untruth is that which does not kill you, makes you weaker. And the third untruth uh, is that you should trust your feelings. So trust your feelings means if something feels bad, it is bad. In other words, trust your elephant, your unconscious. If it feels like somebody's a bad person, maybe we should treat them as a bad person because they are a bad person. So this is a great fallacy. Our elephant is great at quick judgments and helping us get through days, but it's also a terrible, terrible thing to rely on. In fact, it's what leads to so many errors Uh, because we don't listen to our writer, which is more logical, takes more ATP to think, it's slower. Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist, wrote a book, Thinking Fast or Slow. I I think he's actually, I forget if he's an economist or a psychologist. Um, The slow thinking, the the writer, takes a lot of energy. It gets really tiring. So often we rely on our fast thinking system, which is the elephant. Thing is, if you rely on the elephant, you're gonna make hella mistakes, bro. The point is we should be growing our our rider as a good trainer of the elephant so that he can mindfully or she can mindfully listen to the elephant and respond in a way that's response able, as Tim Ferriss says. So you can actually respond instead of just knee jerking. And that's what this trust your feelings. So people go by their gut. Well, this feels like this person's a bad person, therefore I'm gonna act this way. And it's a huge error and it's, It's antithetical to everything we've learned in psychology and spirituality over the years. So meditators understand that you don't just listen to your mind every second there, the chatter in your mind or the emotion there. You recognize it for what it is as it arises. And instead of getting lost and swept up in it, you actually formulate a response that's more compassionate, that's gonna lead to less suffering for yourself and others. And this can take years of practice as a meditator, but it can come quickly at the beginning for anybody who starts to dabble. And Jonathan Haidt talks in the book about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of this kind of meditation. It's recognizing negative thought patterns that arise from negative emotions and feed themselves in a circle. How do you break that? First of all, you recognize that this chatter is not accurate. And there's like eight different fallacies that you have to recognize, like you know, things that you do like catastrophizing, oh my gosh, if I don't get this job, my life is over. Well, that's a fallacy. It's gonna make, it's gonna be self-fulfilling if it leads to more depression in the elephant, which leads to more catastrophizing thinking in the rider and more depression in the elephant in a loop. You know, uh, um, uh, dichotomous thinking is another fallacy. So that person is either all good or all bad. Well, we know that's not true. Um, Or, you know, that person, I'm rotten and that's it. We know that's not true. You're a super complex, nuanced person with elements that are both, you know, adaptive and maladaptive and both compassionate and less than compassionate to others. So we try our best to improve, but it's not all or none. So I highly recommend this book to people who are, again, um, trying to understand why people behave like such jackasses especially online, trying to be better online. I mean, it's helped me a lot. I try to be a little more thoughtful. Now, again, my job is partially to provoke people and to get them to think. And so sometimes I will intentionally be an asshole. Uh, Also, I enjoy it, you know? It's the other thing. I took Jordan Peterson's big five personality test and found out I'm very disagreeable, very impolite, highly compassionate, not very diligent, very OCD. Um, In other words, I love order. Um, you know, and I'm highly extroverted and enthusiastic about stuff as well as intellectual in the sense that I like philosophy and I'm intellectually interested in stuff. So sometimes taking those tests can be pretty helpful. So you can be less judgmental about yourself and more accepting and understand your limits, but try to transcend within those limits as much as you can to be a better person. So let me know, guys, this is just, again, I'm sitting here, it's a Saturday, My family's off doing violin lessons at something. And I thought I'd just talk to y'all. If this is helpful, hit me up by private message on... Email me. Fuck it. Email me. Zubin, Z-U-B-I-N, at turntablehealth.com. And let me know if this is a good thing. And if it is, do me a favor. Hit uh, subscribe on the podcast if you haven't already. And leave a review on iTunes, because that helps us bump up the charts so we can fuck with people more. Uh gosh, that's really it. Please become a supporter. Um, I'll put a link in the in the description for this thing on how to do that on Facebook. If you just go to our Facebook page, the Z Dog MD Facebook page, you'll see a button there that says become a supporter. It helps us tremendously because we don't have to take money from corporations and shit like that. I don't have to be like, okay guys, today's podcast is sponsored by Underoos. I wear underoos because I'm a regressive man-child at age 45, and I really like the feeling of an image of Spider-Man right next to my balls. So please buy underoos. See, I'll never have to do that. And you'll never have to hear it. I love you guys. All right. I'm out. Peace. So join us there if you can, again, zdogmdcom forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.